Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We specialize in helping clinicians in private practice become the clinicians that they want to be. We have one-on-one and group mentoring for those who'd value coaching and guidance on how to apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice and how to manage the challenges that come along when working with humans who have pain. So if interested, check us out at tkex.org and join our Facebook discussion group for all the discussions. And today I've got a special reflection podcast with good friend and colleague, Ellen Masson. She is recent business owner, exercise physiologist, and super smart and one of my role models personally and professionally. So Ellen, it's a pleasure to have you again. And um, it's a bit quiet without your co-host, but we won't we won't mention that to him next time we see you. oh thank you so much Dan that was such a lovely intro um I don't know if I can live up to that but hopefully I will for this podcast I'm, I'm sure of it and um so for those who don't know we've had a couple of podcasts before and the most recent one with Tate Brown and highly highly recommend I want to say this at the start to check out the Into the Red Zone podcast just in case you forget to plug your own podcast Ellen it's Thank you. one of the best, by far the most entertaining as well on my Spotify Thank you. list. Um, Dan was actually reminding me before we started recording the podcast that I even had a podcast. And I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should mention that. So thank you. And, and for the listeners who don't know you, who are you and what do you do? Yes, who so am I? Very existential, very open. Um, well, as Dan said, I'm an exercise physiologist. I just opened a new um, movement space, which is called Your Movement Space in Kirribilli, which is a beautiful, um, beautiful location and really aim to be a safe and weight inclusive space. I also work at Haven Wellness in Summerhill, which is Sydney's only body positive gym, which is a lovely working environment. Um, And then just a little bit more about me vaguely, I'm very passionate about size inclusive care and tearing down the system that idealizes thinness above all else. And as a result, I predominantly work in helping people build a healthy relationship with exercise um and yeah that's pretty much me that's awesome and you definitely introduced me to the haze space and for if if we were to give like a very brief intro for those who've never come across some of these terms the weight inclusive Mm -hmm. size inclusive and we'll be using Mm -hmm. that as well as we reflect i think Touching on haze is also a good one as well. So I'll Mm. do that first because then it makes the other ones like easier to understand. So um, haze just stands for health at every size and it's a set of beliefs or principles that centre around the concept of health being multifaceted. So the idea that your health cannot be um, dictated by one specific outcome, that health has many factors that contribute to it and that people's ability to achieve whatever we define as health also varies based on different factors within that too. So within that kind of general framework, there are a couple of different principles. I hope I get all of these like right off the top of my head, which would be fantastic. All the people would be like, wow, Ellen, good job. So first one is... uh, 
like it's basically what size inclusivity is, to be honest. The first principle basically states that we reject the um, idealising of thin bodies and we reject the pathologization of fatness and we hold space. Um, oh, actually, I don't want to get into that. I'm going to bleed into the second, bleed into the second one. So that's the first one, which is basically what size inclusive is. The second principle is about acknowledging size diversity. So having, what's the best way to phrase it? That it's normal and natural for bodies to come in all shapes and sizes. So there isn't one body that is the body that we're all supposed to be in, that we acknowledge and believe like full-heartedly that humans come in all shapes and sizes and that there is nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, the next one is joyful movement. So joyful movement is um, basically what I spend a lot of my time doing as an exercise physiologist, which is basically helping a lot of people who have developed this very punitive relationship with exercise, using exercise as a very, um, as basically just an outcome to get weight loss most of the time and helping them discover exercise that is, you know, meaningful to them, that is enjoyable, that centers fun, because we know that exercise that is enjoyable is sustainable and sustainable movement is the only thing that will allow us to access health outcomes that we want, right? Otherwise, if we're jumping on the roundabout, doing random things, jumping off, we're never having that consistency that we need. Um, and then food as well, which isn't really my uh, my forte because I'm not a dietitian, but the food element of it is eating for enjoyment and eating for meeting your nutritional needs instead of um, eating for like weight loss or trying to restrict your body or deplete it. And then the last one is about social justice. So acknowledging the the trials and tribulations that people in larger bodies face, acknowledging that weight stigma exists and plays an integral part to why it is so hard for people in larger bodies to um, gain access to health and to acknowledge that this is an actual health crisis and a real epidemic and know that the system is a part of the thing that actually needs to change. It's not the person's responsibility to change within the system. We need to change in order to get them to where they need to be. Woo. Awesome. That That's, was, that was, yeah. that was a lot. So I hope that was helpful. Hayes 101. Absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's slowly, I feel becoming more and more uh, popular and, and commonplace, but it's still helpful to have an over, overall, definition because I, I feel like maybe some people are already along this line they just haven't yet come across it especially if you are treating humans and um, not being a dick and mm. you know not just treating a, a biomedical condition especially in the MSK in pain space and there's mm. so many overlaps with that BPS holistic person-centered approach and the Hayes approach on top of of course uh, it being more of a social justice uh, lens to look through and to acknowledge the inequities that people in larger bodies face. Have 100%. I, yeah. So it's, if I was to like give a one liner, it'd be like health enhancing, uh, promoting the um, joyful movement for in terms of for EPs listening, making movement about 
the holistic health, not just for a weight outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say so. I think the only thing I would add to that would be that we're focusing on like the behavior of exercise rather than the outcome of like weight loss, for example. So we're trying to make the exercise process, like exercise journey for someone with a lot more choice for the individual. So it's not as rigid. So they feel like they have more options to engage. And then on top of that, like builds, um, build this process driven operation for them so that it's not, Oh, like we just got to get to this point. I'm just trying to chase this. I'm just trying to chase this. It's like, the win is them coming to the session. The win is them going for the walk. The win is doing the thing rather than the, the trying to get to something at the very end. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's, it's funny when I first came across it, I realized that the, that outcome focus is drilled into us in so many sectors of like chasing a particular goal in the fitness industry, like whether it's, uh, you know, chasing a certain number on, on the bar in powerlifting or chasing mm-hmm. a certain number on the scale. So it's, I think, yeah, having that process focus instead. And we, we touched on this in a podcast together in about 2020, I think it was, was this like pre just the start of COVID from memory. And, um, mm-hmm. I have a, like a, a laundry list of things that I, uh, I used to do a lot more of, or like, you know, quote unquote mistakes from reflecting on those times. Um, and I was curious with um, using this as a reflective space to, to bounce back and forth, maybe some, some things that we, we, we've learned throughout this journey in the past mm-hmm. few years. And um, I invite you to, to start. And I'm also happy to, you know, repent all my sins. Jump in. Once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, let's do it. I'm so excited. I love, I know it might sound counterintuitive, but I actually really enjoy reflecting on where I've come from because it makes me, makes me feel reassured that I'm not stagnating as a practitioner. I would be absolutely mortified if I looked back and I couldn't identify anything that had changed in the way that I do things between now, between then and now. So I'm very keen to dive in. Um, And I thought we'd start with something that I started touching on um before we started recording which is um the last podcast Dan and I did on TKX TKX well I can't even say say the name of the group properly this is embarrassing but um no offense it was called I'm pretty sure it was called a BPS approach to weight management yeah and at the time I thought that that was good language to be using to describe what I was trying to do. I was trying to say it's it's weight loss, but it's BPS, right? It's weight loss, but it's BPS. We can do safe weight loss. We can help people manage their weight in a BPS framework. However, BPS and weight loss do not exist together, in my opinion. Like I don't think you can truly have like a biopsychosocial informed framework and have weight loss involved like even just taking the social element of how um, things impact people's health 
if someone's in a larger body, and we touched on this a little bit earlier with the health at every size principles, just the sheer impact of what it is like to be in a society that is not made for you, that doesn't want you, that suppresses you, that constantly rejects you. Like, I don't, I look back at the that concept, that idea I had, and it was just so riddled it was good it was it was well intended but it was so riddled with my own biases and my own privilege of you know being in a fairly straight-sized body you know never having a fat experience never really understanding or taking the time to understand or listen to other people's lived experience to understand how fucked I hope I'm allowed to swear on this podcast um Yes, you are. The situation truly is, you know, and I just, I think that there was a lot of ignorance there and it wasn't, it wasn't willful, but I just, my my personal circumstances hadn't allowed me quite yet to be exposed. And if I was going to reflect on what was a big, the big change for me was when I started intentionally pushing myself to try and you know, listen to fat experiences, to find people to hear stories, you know, and also like the more I entrenched myself in, um, the more I tried to push myself to want to work with people who were, um, who were fat and had a fat experience, the more I heard their stories. And I was like, wow, this is just, you know, I don't think the two things are compatible. Yeah, so you you learnt through the the process uh, of honouring people's experiences and like empathising with it and recognising that the language that you use is so important and so reflective of the framework that you use and you can't, you needed to like update the words that you used in order to fit these principles that we outlined of being hazeline, yes. you, you can't have both. Like it doesn't really, it's incoherent. No. And I think if we're also talking about, um, you know, implicit effects of like practitioner beliefs, when you say something to someone who's, you know, in a fat body where it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're managing your weight, what is the message that that word sends to that person? Manage, control. I should be able to control my weight, right? You're automatically within a sentence basically just saying that you don't embrace the idea of size diversity because if you truly did embrace size diversity, you wouldn't be trying to control someone's body. No one can control someone's body. We have very little evidence that suggests that people, particularly in larger bodies, can lose weight successfully and maintain it long term so it's yeah there's lots of problems there yeah and and what was um the most helpful resource or yeah communities like looking back uh that helped you to recognize that and kind of progress to the next stage um if you had like your 2020 self right now, what would you kind of recommend for her to, to read or listen to and also for the um, listeners who are keen to explore this? I think I've learned 
to really value lived experience. And I think that lived experience has to be elevated here. Like we should be going straight to the source of the people who have, like who have these experiences. Um, And so, you know, doing, it was like kind of like a threefold, I I would say, I would say hearing people's actual lived experience, like listening to videos, um, watching documentaries, supervision that's also like based for lived experience with people in larger bodies. Um, There was that, that would be a huge part. Discovering haze as a thing, because when I actually met you, I know we had like a lot of conversation around my thoughts and ideas, but I was still very isolated at the time. Like I didn't really know that there was a group of anyone who thought anything like what I was was trying to work out in my mind and so I discovered um, health at every size after I met you like I hadn't already discovered that at that time and so discovering that discovering the wider community in Australia there are practitioners and people who believe this stuff who practice this stuff who work in this framework and the more you can reach out to people and build that community the more uh, you can be challenged by others. The more questions you can ask, um, that was really, really vital and really, really helpful as well. Yeah, the, the value of the uh, phenomenology or the lived experience of the of the person in you know, rather than um, I guess that there is also the the weight science. I think you may have come across at that time. I know I mm. thanks to you, um, I recommend the Mindful Dietitian for kind of research papers along the the, the weight loss science side of yeah. thing because that's Fiona already, Weller yeah. yeah Fiona Weller also has a very good series a podcast series and also a free course that you can do which is quite short which is called um, unpacking weight science which I would also recommend which just goes into a little bit around like the core problems with the research on which all of these um, weight centric weight loss interventions are based on yeah. it's like I, I can see it can be uh both unpacking our own understanding of weight loss and weight science and then also reaching out to get that experiential learning through supervision through these community groups and and through learning more from those lived experiences i think that can mm. be kind of helpful both ways to like because i i definitely reflecting back 2020 me had a lot of um, implicit beliefs that I think came out a lot with our first conversation now reflecting back. So yeah, I, and I, I liken it to one of my things that I put down um, to just going for a, a weight loss goal without questioning mm-hmm. at the start. And then now mm-hmm. just adding some extra questions thanks to meeting people like you. Um, mm. And I wanted to segue, not to take away your spotlight into one of my mistakes, if that, if I may, asking Please. for permission on my own podcast, um, <laughs> the having um, a pain reduction framework, mm. even though I was within an acceptance and commitment therapy kind of act, you know, accepting, making space, acknowledging pain, I'd still be mm-hmm. like really excited for any symptom modification. So I'd, I'd, mm. I'd think like I was a, I was a God, if I was able to, you know, modify some movement and be like, yeah, wizard done. So it's like, I was 
talking act or like, you know, saying that we didn't need to chase away symptoms and pain, but I'd still be like implicitly wanting to ask a leading question, like a Socratic question in their uh, experiential learning or, or movement kind of exploration for that. Mm, yeah, I can totally relate to that myself. Definitely been there. Um, it's one of those weird situations, right, where you're not necessarily you, you're not necessarily noticing that you're doing it until you have like someone else really pointed out to you. I think with that kind of stuff, um, I definitely know that. I think I, from memory, only started to think about that a little bit more when you started to think about it and you started to post about it. And I was like, do I do that? (laughs) And then I was like, had to process that a little bit. I'm like, yeah, I definitely do do that a little bit. And I think that that just shows the power of community and also the power of like um, admitting, admitting like flaws because, you know, I know that you talking about that at that time, that would have been at least a year more, year or more ago for sure. Um, that definitely impacted the way I did things. You know, even if we never, even if we never directly discussed it, discussed it or I never raised it or we never talked about it, it still had quite a large impact. There you go. That's something I learned just now. That's good to know. There's, um, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like you, you don't get this experience or you don't, even know these possible questions exist so you don't know the gaps in your own learning and so hence the value of like open-ended uh safe a safe space for discussions and for like questioning everything that we know as hard as it is so yeah i'm I'm glad to have evoked some curiosity in your newsfeed scrolling back in the day Yeah, definitely. Definitely a little bit of curiosity. Um, never hurt anyone, right? Yeah. And um, handing it back to to your reflections from 2020, anything mm. else that you uh, are doing now more or less of or differently? Yeah, definitely. I, I thought I would share like a big piece, which is very different, which I might take a little bit of explaining if that's okay. Um. So at the time, you know, 2020, pre-COVID, we all thought it was, life was great. Um, I was, you know, trying to figure out this stuff um, and I just was really stumped. I was like, I understand like, you know, uh, particularly in terms of like eating disorders and helping people with eating disorders. I was like, I understand what dietitians do. Like they're the food people, right? They help people rebuild their relationship with food and, like, make sure that they're nutritionally adequate. I understand that. I get that. And I'm like, I understand what psychologist does. Like, you know, they're there to help, you know, people rebuild their psychological flexibility. You know, people become so rigid when they end up with illnesses like this. It's um, they're a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. And I was looking at myself and I'm like, well, none of these things are in my scope and I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Like as an EP, what is my role here? And I was very confused. I was 
I really wanted to I really wanted to help and I didn't understand how to help sorry this is like actually like a little emotive um randomly and and it was really frustrating because there was no information for me to be able to learn how to work and so unfortunately I had to kind of go trial by fire which isn't like the best <laughs> the best way to do things but I um through all of my looking at, at and figuring things looking at things and trying to look at research and seeing what was available to me I finally thank finally stumbled across uh, the safe exercise at every stage guidelines um, and I had this beautiful aha moment where I was like oh wow like yes it, it makes it makes so much sense that people need to stay active regardless of what illness they have because they need the the there's many different health related benefits and recovery related benefits for them to be moving at a level that is safe for their body at the level um, of their recovery it makes total sense that someone needs to be there to be able to provide safe supported exercise given how complex these presentations can be and it makes total sense that someone needs to be there to be able to help these people a identify um, dysfunctional exercise habits and dysfunctional beliefs around exercise that can be um, rooting people into that cycle of behavior they're in and provide psychoeducation to allow people to explore and discover you know new ways of looking at exercise if they're open to that and when I found that I was just like wow like okay I get it like this is what I can do as an EP and then it was it was difficult because I was like I was still alone like I still didn't have anyone there was still no community that I was aware of and I and um <laughs> and so I just ended up starting to see clients and it was literally like a trial by fire it was like all I had was research and I was just trying to figure stuff out and walk through the walk through the waters myself which I wouldn't recommend by the way uh it's not fantastic so I'm going to recommend to everyone else if they're interested in this area what I wish I knew from the start which is a definitely still go do the C's courses like level one and two it's super important if you're interested in this area um definitely do not start engaging with this population before you do what I would consider the fundamental training and then for the love of Christ get a supervisor like please <laughs> um, because there are only to my knowledge from what my supervisor has told me there are only maybe eight or so exercise physiologists in like in Australia like who work in this area predominantly and that's why there is so little information out there. So if you were interested, I would recommend, you know, really going going and doing C's, reaching out to some of the people who did C's, uh, who created C's, 
I was really lucky that every single person on the research team was happy to talk to me, which was lovely. So I chatted to everyone who helped create those guidelines and I was able to sort of find um, my supervisor kind of through that and asking um, asking around. So that's been, that was really, really great. So I just wanted to share that. If there's anyone else who is out there listening to this podcast who is like, I want to work in the ED space but I don't know how an EP can help. I hope that um, I hope that this was helpful and that this can give like a little bit of direction as to where you may be able to go. That's a safe exercise at everystage.com. And that's so it's S E E S C's. And they have yeah. online courses yes. available. Great. So- Actually, not not like I mean like online in the sense of like yeah, like not like online at your own pace, but um, like online Live. courses. Yes, online. Yep, that's, that's yep. the word I was looking for. Thank yep, you. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's uh, you had the the trial by error and, and looking at uh, doing what you could with the research that you had, but it it really does make a difference when you have uh, a supervisor to bounce ideas and have that space to reflect on where you're going and if you're heading the right direction. Otherwise. Yeah, it's so difficult. You you can't do this alone is probably the, the take-home message for listeners. And I think Definitely. that applies to so many things. I think like re- reflecting back, uh, supervision is something that I feel uh, needs to be normalized and more, um, more so in the physical therapy space. We just don't have that as much as, say, a psychologist or a clinical psych mm-hmm. um, or any kind of psychotherapist might. And there's a lot of benefit to that space that's just beyond general courses or or colleague discussions or, or case discussions even. Yeah. Um, it, sure. how, how would you describe it to, to Ellen of 2020? Because I'm thinking now, like, um, looking at myself in 2020, and if I was like, get supervision, Daniel, like, you don't, yeah. you don't know what you don't know. There's things that show up for you. And that might get in the way of your clinical reasoning and like, or it's like almost like what you mentioned with the post that started questioning your practice that you never even considered questioning. And that's Mm. what that supervision space can do in a very safe um, and compassionate, kind way. So Mm. yeah, what what would you say to? Well, I think I'm going to, I'm going to give a little bit of context to what I would say to 2020 Alan. And I think the first thing I would just say generally is something that stuck with me that my supervisor said to me once is the, I mean, in this weight and shapes concern area, the people have very, very complex things going on in their life. It's a very emotive and energy draining. Not always. It's very rewarding, but it it takes a lot. You know, you have to, you have to give, give a lot. And I remember she said to me, you know, Ellen, like exercise physiologists are not trained to deal with this. Like we are not trained to deal with mental, like the, the, this, the high level of mental health here that is going on. We do not even have one fingernail of trainings worth to prepare us for what is happening right now. And that made, that made me feel a lot better because I was I felt like I should just be able to cope with it, you know. I should just be able to handle it. And 
I um so what I would say to 2020 Ellen would be just imagine having someone who is no matter what is always going to support you is going to be there to talk talk you through all of your challenging presentations to offer you like reassurance that what you're doing is good and that you're you're enough doing what you're doing particularly in the EP space where our scope is so limited, it can be hard sometimes to draw those lines and say, well, I actually shouldn't be giving more at this point. Like this is actually, this is this is where I have to stop. And it's not until you have someone else say you need to stop or it's okay that you're stopping now or you did a really good, I know you're upset, but you did a really good job. You actually stayed within your scope. You shouldn't have done anything else, you know. That shit is just so powerful to just have that validation and reassurance from an external person. So I would highly recommend that everyone everyone get on it for sure. <laughs> there is that that need that we have to... Um, have a you mentioned like a community and even having uh, a safe person to give us that permission and can you know give us that clinical guidance through their training experience to let us know like we're actually on the right track and maybe I, I definitely catch myself working too hard sometimes mm. for clients and that's like next level I'm imagining in ED because I don't have that experience where that um is that kind of advice is even more needed when you're working with people in that space mm. and that's yeah. definitely different to your standard training for for ep mm. yeah but it's all like it can be leveled out to like like even though we've all i think that we've all had a client that's really either confused us or challenged us we've just been left like upset by or really unsure of and it can just no matter what area you work in you know people are people so there's going to be there's going to be transparent transference and counter transference on both sides right and you know humans weren't designed to navigate this stuff alone we actually just don't have have the skill set to be able to do it alone we need an objective outside party to be able to look in and give us that guide guidance regardless of what area of ep we might work in yeah i can share that from my own personal lived experience and the privilege i have of mentoring which is basically in my mind it ends up being supervision of like the, I notice what comes up for me, like what shows up when someone has a pain response, especially if they're like of a, like I can relate to their story and I can like almost in my body feel the frustration or the disappointment or like put all the blame on me for for having them have a flare up. And then mm. that causes a, a visceral reaction in in me at that time. So having the skill and the awareness to notice that, that definitely came from supervision. I would not have even recognized that a lot of things I was doing was just my emotional response and my care. And 
and it could have um yeah it, it's it's very difficult to see um, when you're in that particular moment and you're in that therapeutic relationship to have that outside of perspective is so valuable and needed yeah I um I really like what you said just then about like not having that sense like not having that sensory experience unless you had supervision and I find it so interesting that it's not even something that's mentioned to us like that that's important um in any way it's and that's really interesting to me like as EPs or as people working with other people we're not acknowledging enough how being in that relationship actually also affects us and I think that having someone as well to just debrief that element of it like how it's impacting you is so so critically important as well because I think that there's a big skill to be learned um in uh, I'm trying to find the right language just bear with me for a moment in learning to soothe self-soothe yourself when something comes up in session for you while holding space for someone else it's a really difficult skill to learn and we don't um learning to not be reactive in those sort of moments or at least less reactive in those kind of moments is only really a skill that I've developed through not only supervision but also um, seeing a psychologist regularly as well to help address all of my other stuff that kind of comes up when I'm interacting with people which I'd also highly recommend everyone do too (laughs) get on the waiting list right now it's at least six months plus depending on where you're at Exactly. Um, but yeah, I, and I can um, not like to to take away from your experience, but like to normalize that I see a psych very much so for very similar reasons. And I think that's important. Um, there was a, I forgot her, her name, um, Nicole Piedmonte, I believe. I could be pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, she has an Instagram and she made a great uh, carousel on person-centered versus relationship-centered care. And we forget with a person-centered or even like a client-centered approach that it centers very much so on the the person with the illness or the condition or or pain, it can often forget the clinician and how the Mm. clinician is impacted and how if the clinician is impacted, that will also affect the the treatment, the relationship. So the relationship-centered care centers around that therapeutic interpersonal space and that's oftentimes forgotten in in many clinic spaces where it's a churn in churn out you know kind of environment where we are depersonalized in a way and we forget that a person's suffering can definitely affect us we get that uh, empathetic uh, response physiological response and it changes the way that we behave as well for better or worse sometimes but yeah, I, I, it's like talking, imagining myself now talking to maybe 2019, 2020, uh, Daniel, I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you're not a psychologist, like shut up. So <laughs> I don't know what I would do to 2019, Daniel, but yeah. What would you say? Um, w- would you say that you were, you would be, um, on board with supervision say two, three years ago, would you have had, um, I think, I think I 
I don't think I would have. I think my issue was I did not have access to the resources that I wanted despite trying to find them, which is really disturbing to me, to be honest, because um, people, every we live in a society where weight and shape concerns, um, not just clinical eating disorders, are rife. And the fact that we don't have more resources around helping people, you know, a screening for dysfunctional exercise habits in people, you know, a, it's crazy. Like dysfunctional exercise habits are one of the first things that show up before someone develops an eating disorder and is the last thing that leaves often. Um, and the fact that we do not have more information out there on not only how to identify, but then what are the skills-based stuff that we need to teach people in order to tackle this? What are the educational components that we need to do in order in order to do this? Like a lot of the stuff that I've made, I've made myself or with the help of resources that I've given clients, I've made myself or through the help of my supervisor. Um, and there's just nothing that exists out there. So for me, it was definitely more so a case of like wanting information but not being able to find it. If I had someone walk up to my door and was like, I'm here to tell you everything about this topic that you're interested in, I would have been like, yay. Full, full acceptance mode, straight in, like a sponge. Yeah, I'd be like, done, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> would, um, would there have been a point, I'm, I'm also trying to, so my my lens and biases in the MSK pain space. And I notice that there is that there's, a, there's almost too many resources and a lot of misinformation amongst the resources, um, which is a, I guess, a difference if we were to compare the eating disorder space with the pain MSK injury space. Mm. If, if you were talking to a, a clinician who maybe wasn't in the eating disorder space, but they, they're probably starting to notice that some of their clients are um, displaying some, some behaviors that might indicate either referral or the, or the need to kind of address, if we're looking at it from a, a spectrum, address some of the dysfunctional exercise behaviors. Um, what, what, what advice would you provide in those spaces if they're, um, not, if they're not in the ED yeah. space, putting on the spot I, here as well, like yeah, feel free no, to bounce this idea back. Um, no, that's that's fine. I think you're going to hate me for saying this, but I think context does matter um, in terms of the way that the person is presenting, um, because there are there are red flags in the ED space so if there's red flags for like eating behavior activity behavior social based behavior interaction based behavior um and sometimes these things can be like so, so some very common ones could like around exercise might be um having a super super rigid exercise routine where it's like no matter how you're feeling, no matter if you have an injury, no matter if your loved one's in hospital, you are at the gym, you're doing your exact amount of reps with the exact amount of weight that you did, like everything is the same, right? And if you can't do it the way you want to do it, 
you feel extreme levels of guilt, extreme levels of shame. If you don't go to the gym, you feel extreme levels of guilt or shame. This is really, really common. Um, Punitive-based behaviours, so eating food and then going, well, now I've got to go to the gym and burn that off or now or like giving yourself permission to eat as well. So like going, oh, I've got to go to the gym so I can eat dinner, you know, those kind of things. Um, those are super, super common as an example, but they may not reach the threshold for like massive amounts of concern if other things aren't present. So for for example, if if certain eating behaviours aren't present, you might not necessarily need to refer off. It would be more like a make note and monitor and also ask questions to try and figure out how rooted this behaviour actually is and what are the whys for the behaviour. So, like, if um, if the person is, um, you know, as I said, like excessively training in a very rigid routine, it's like, why are you doing this behaviour? What is the outcome you're looking for from this? I really want to understand and try and come from a more understanding perspective rather than a judgmental perspective. So try and really understand the person. Um, and if if it's just, you know, one or two things that you're starting to notice and you feel like you have a good rapport with the person I would seriously consider sitting down with them and saying like something really really simple and really really open like hey like I've noticed that this is happening at the moment um and that this is happening at the moment like how are you going currently like how do you feel do you want to tell me or talk about this more right um and allow the person space to actually either engage with you in terms of wanting to talk about it or also if they're not ready to yet, to dismiss you. Um, what I would encourage is that if they don't want to talk to you, um, and again, you can go, you can go to the you can go to the C's guidelines if you want to have a look at them, but they are more for clinical eating disorder. I would try and ulcer, like it's really, this is a really, really hard question because it's really, really context dependent. So I'm trying my best. So I really apologize if this sounds really no, bad yeah. on the audio. And talking like a um, clinic context, a gym context with a, a client and yeah. EP is noticing um, it. Yeah. So what I would probably like in that kind of context, what I'd probably recommend is just trying to like etch off the behavior as much as possible. So if the person is coming in and they want to do like, they feel like they have to do X in order to do blah, 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 trying to give them permission to not do that because often they're, they start creating like really like strict rules in their head and the option of not doing the thing just doesn't actually exist to them. So trying to provide as much flexibility as possible for them, like endless amounts of flexibility. Try not to say you have to do this or have to do that. Try and even let them select things within reason. Like the more flexibility within the exercise routine, the better. 
Um, yeah, this is. I'm struggling with this question. No, this is so sorry. Golden. It's um. <laughs> is it like I feel in this is a it's a hard context because it's a a context that I don't I no longer work in. Um, because I normally now have people like. It's not. I can normally set exercise expectations up from the start. So if someone if someone comes in, for example, and they have a very severe eating disorder presentation, I can kind of say to them from the outset, "This is the limitations of the exercise that we're doing together," because they're coming to me for advice, and so part of them eating disorders are naturally ambival- like have a level of ambivalence attached to them. It's the very nature of the of the condition. So some part of them wants change and that part of them is coming to see me. So I can kind of utilise that to say these are the conditions in which we are moving our bodies considering where you are in your recovery, which is quite different to you already having a relationship with someone and you're noticing those behaviours starting to show up in that context, if that makes sense. Yeah, and even I can um, think of cases perhaps where coming across more of this new knowledge and information about um, exercise dependency and unhealthy relationships towards exercise, and then like I myself, I'm just reflecting on personal experience can notice when I put up rigid rules in my programming or with my uh, rehab protocols or with my own training, then I can be like, Oh, I didn't even know there were other options for Mm. me to explore different ways of moving so that it was less of the kind of rule, strict, rigid rule governing behavior and more of Mm. like, Hey, let's, what if we tried something different? Like random. Yeah, you don't have yeah. to do five by five squats. Like, do four by six. Pick a number between, <laughs> you know, not just less than ten because that sucks. So pick pick a number, and then having the client choose and have more autonomy in that process. I think mm. I think I can see how this can overlap with general exercise um, prescription. Yeah, and I think that uh, I really actually like what you said there because. I think a bigger problem too, and this might be going a bit too wide on the fishnet, but we have, so we have, oh, okay, got to break this down in my head. So we have practitioners, right, who are dysfunctional themselves, okay? So they've got. Just define that because I'm pretty dysfunctional so, so, like in so some cases in and contexts. Not necessarily like clinically, but they have very bad, um, they have a bad relationship with exercise. Yeah, unhealthy relationship uh, right? with exercise. Like I have to do it at all times. I yeah. have a strict routine. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like compensatory behaviors or like needing a really common thing I see in trainers, which a lot of people don't realize is quite is quite dysfunctional from an exercise perspective. Is the need to do more. So, like, if you have to go into the gym and you're like, I have to put an extra 1.25 kilos on my squat, otherwise I feel like shit, that's actually dysfunctional behaviour because exercise is controlling your emotional response. It's similar to stepping on a scale, right? So there, there are all these sort of things that often being in the exercise environment, us as practitioners already have taken on, right? And then we meet other people who already 
have early signs of dysfunctional eating or dysfunctional relationship with um, exercise or other um, very, very strong predictors of um, developing an eating disorder like um, mental health is a very big one, particularly anxiety, um, obsessive personality traits, um, those really, really, really can pull through and create something when some of these factors come together. And so we don't screen that person. We don't ask questions about their food, their dieting history, their exercise history, their relationship with these things. We don't ask very, very basic questions. And then we tee them up with a practitioner who's dysfunctional in their relationship with exercise. And then they start implicitly sending like, putting that onto that client rather than creating a really flexible, fun, you know, unrestricted, um, intuitive movement relationship, right? It's almost like there's a crossroads there where it's like could go one way or the other and this person could have completely different outcomes being paired with, you know, completely different people. And so for me, I think to now that I've done this whole 360 in my brain, To answer your original question, my preference would be to fix the problem at the start because it's a lot harder once the person has started to develop those things. um, It's a lot harder to walk back from it. We need from the very, very start, from our first interaction with that person to have a more flexible, intuitive approach with movement. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so you're combining the dysfunctional or unhealthy relationships with exercise and um, 2020 me is triggered right now because I definitely did not want rest breaks. I would never take like a week off the gym. Um, I would be like, you know, working through pain and ignoring pain because I knew pain science and, you know, pain wasn't a thing. It was all in my head. Um, And like, yeah, the the workout was uh, placed above other important things in mm. in my life so then you know combining that with someone who comes in maybe they're hyper focused on calories and they really have a a, a weight loss goal mm. that just creates that storm of within a context where you know this is normalized in fitness culture i'm thinking mm. um a, a gym setting it's just increasing the risk of unhealthy many things dysfunctional many things is my diagnosis I love that dysfunctional many things. I'm going to use that. (laughs) But I think it's true. And I think this is why it's so sad that they're going back to what I was saying before about resources, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the time we need to address our own shit so that we don't project onto other people. And, and that goes for like many different areas. You know, it's like what you just said then. It's like a lot of people don't realize that when we start doing stuff like, oh, I have a social event on, but um, I really normally go to the gym on Saturday, so I'm going to go to the gym instead. Like people don't realise that that's fucked. Like you're, that the gym is like controlling your social like agenda. Um, we don't have enough resources to allow people to reflect and say, oh, actually, I do this and I never realized that I do this, you know. It wasn't until I actually um, I started to delve more into the dysfunctional exercise side of things that 
I actually had to make, I had to have a complete step back from what I was doing exercise wise, because I realized how dysfunctional everything was and that, you know, um, I've spoken very um, openly about this, but I have lived experience with an eating disorder and my eating disorder was hanging on through the dysfunctional exercise. It was, it was really, really trying. And that's what happens to a lot of people when they get to the end of their recovery. You know, the food stuff's kind of been addressed, the psych stuff's kind of been addressed, but the eating disorder lives on in the dysfunctional exercise that was never addressed. So basically uh, sort your own stuff out or yes. ag- acknowledge and become aware of your own stuff in the first yes. place because if you're not even aware of it, it's hard to do anything about it, to address it. Yeah. It's like yeah. You, you're not even aware that there's an option to um, to not exercise. You don't have to mm. exercise or to do something different. So that, that awareness, I think, is the first step to then give people more choices and autonomy and that, to know that there's also communities out there, a lot more communities now to, to refer to if needed. Mm. Have I missed any reflections as we're wrapping up? Um, they wanted to well, I could, I, could re- I could reflect for like a, an eon. It just kind of depends. If, if, you, <laughs> if you had one, one in there that you, you'd say you wanted to, to capture? Let me think. I think this is like I'll I'll keep with a small one, just respecting time. But I think one of the things that I was obsessed with when I first started kind of going down this rabbit hole was the idea of like being able to change people's minds. Like I thought that, you know, if I asked the right questions, like if someone said that they wanted weight loss, I could, you know, ask the right series of questions and I'd be able to sort of show them that they didn't want weight loss. They wanted something else, you know? And I, similar to you, when you were talking before, I was like, I'm a magician. Like, didn't you see what I just did? You said you wanted this. You actually want this. (laughs) Yay. Let's move on. No need to see me. Let's, let's fine. Um, And so I kind of had this, this sort of mindset of like, I can convince people, I can convince people out of weight loss, you know? And I think that there were quite a few problems with that. I think that I've learned to, through work on myself as well as, you know, work I've done to help understand people better, but I've really learned that you've got to respect the parts of people, you know? There's a part of that person that wants to lose weight, you know, and it's not the whole part of the person necessarily, but there's a part. And if you're unable to hold space for that part, make that part feel safe, actually be curious about the part and understand it and, you know, understand its role too. Like, why is it there? Like, where is this, where is this coming from? If you can't hold that part, you're never going to create any space for anything else because often a lot of, and I'm not saying for everyone, this is quite a generalisation. It's just based off my own clinical experience. But a lot of people's desire comes from, a lot of people's weight loss desire comes from a place of vulnerability in my personal experience. And unless you actually can hold that vulnerability and understand that it's that person's vulnerability 
I you actually can't move anywhere with that person. So by just dismissing them and being like, oh, well, we're not going to do this and blah, 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 blah. It's really, really counterintuitive. Um, and so there's there's that part of that. But the other thing as well, it was kind of linking back to what I was saying about, you know, being in a fat body and, and weight stigma and how that plays out. I also realised that part of me was also dismissing the fat experience because I would be talking to my fat clients and they would be saying stuff like it would my life would actually just be easier if I was smaller you know for a multitude of reasons you know fitting through doors not having to worry about chairs or seatbelt extenders or airplanes or people looking at them or or medical providers judging them you know for just an atrocity of reasons right and and who who am I to dismiss that that's fucking real you know that's the result of them living in a world like we all do that tells us non-stop that thin is better and the world was made for people who fit that narrative so by dismissing by dismissing that part of them when they were like you know I still want to lose weight instead of saying I understand that and I think you'll always I think there'll always be a part of you that wants to lose weight and I'm here to talk about that if you want to. Instead of saying that, saying something like, oh, yeah, but like blah, 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 you don't really need to lose weight and dismissing them, dismiss their their lived experience and I've only really in the last year really realised how wrong that is. Yeah, again, honouring the person's lived experience and and their goals, they're there for a reason. I think it can be very easy um, to unintentionally dismiss anyone's lived experience, whether that also be pain reduction or weight loss. If if we know what we know, we might be missing out on the interaction and the what the person is actually saying as to the reasons why they want to lose weight. I can recall uh, having clients who they can't fit in their clothes anymore so they have to buy an entire wardrobe how sucky is that so if if i was to immediately go actually you know the research shows that weight loss doesn't actually really happen in most cases so just like (laughs) just like live with it and we'll work with it it's like what i didn't you know i just dismissed their very real concern that they now have to you know invest an entire set of new clothes that they have to find now because there's not too many clothes out there that fit their bodies so so easy to dismiss. Yeah, it's so easy to dismiss. And even in that example, there are other factors that I know I wasn't thinking about the way I, I've become much more aware of like um, the social determinants of health and even something like that where it's like, okay, someone on Instagram who's like into body positivity might be like, oh, just like buy new pants, your body's worth it or whatever. Um but what if they can't afford new pants? What if they can't afford to deck out their wardrobe? What if that isn't genuine concern for them? And what if that is a driver? Because a lot of people can't financially afford to replace all the clothing in their wardrobe. And I think that, that, that even just those, those things, I know I wasn't thinking about them the way I think about it now. It comes much more to the front of mind when I think about circumstances like this. I'm looking at the time and I have the time 
myself, but respecting your time, would you like to, because you had mentioned one more reflection that you had that was a bit of a, a bigger one. <laughs> or would you like to wrap up and you can leave that for another episode? Up to you. Um, so you look at me practicing shared decision-making. <laughs> I know. We're like making decisions together. As No one's ever asked me like whether I'm ready to end a podcast yet, so I feel really special. That's true now. <laughs> Reflecting on the Into the Red Zone podcast. You're just like, got to wrap it up, guys. Sorry. Bye. Oh, I've got one. It's not related to anything that I've talked about so far, and it's completely random actually, but I think it's important. <laughs> Please. Um, I would like to talk about boundaries. <laughs> um, uh, I don't even know where to start with this one. I don't think I knew what a boundary was in 2020, <laughs> like in my personal or professional life, uh, just saying. I was very much um, someone, again, personally and professionally, who felt the need to go above and beyond for people. And in this sense, I would always be uh, kind of working hard, like working, sometimes working harder than my clients. Like I was really, really emotionally invested in their well-being and it was really, really not healthy because I was really, really, I was really, really burnt out. Um, I was in situations where I was just kind of saying yes to work. So work would, instead of having like hours that, because I'm a contractor, so I can work when I want, instead of having hours, work would come and I would just say yes. And I would just take it, you know, I would just work more. And so I ended up in this position around that time where I was working really like long hours doing lots of sessions and not having any emotional capacity for myself. So I'm going to shout out uh, Tara McGregor's course on boundaries, which is a good course would recommend. <laughs> uh, I think everyone should do uh, Tara's course um, as well as get a supervisor. <laughs> Some of the things that I've, I've found that, have been a lot, have been really valuable for me are around having a set time schedule and having boundaries around when I contact, when clients can contact me or when I'm going to respond to clients, having set hours. So being like, you know, these are my hours between this and this and this and this. And I, no matter what, unless it's like a big, big exception, I'm not working outside of these hours. So they're big changes. Um, I've actually a really huge thing, which is only more recently, probably in the last year, has been me working on my client's self-disclosure. So, again, because of my people-pleasing nature and my tendency to want to go above and beyond for people, I end up trying to make people like me and I do that by sharing a lot about who I am and what's going on in my life and what my interests are. And I end up creating this, I was ending up creating relationships with clients which weren't just therapeutic, you know. They were much more, um, they were much more relational and not always in a, not always in a good way. Like sometimes that can happen and, and it's fine. But for me, I was getting into situations where, you know, people felt like they could comment on 
what like whether they liked my hair or not or whether they liked my outfit or telling me how to give me life advice and all of this other stuff that was unwelcome and unneeded. And so now I'm very careful and specific about the information that I give my clients. So that there are things about my personal life that I'm okay with divulging to clients, but I know specifically what that line is. I know where I stop, like where Ellen, Ellen the professional like stops and Ellen personal begins. And I don't let clients like lure me into discussing things that I don't want to discuss. Um, and if they, if they do ask me questions that I don't want to answer, I'll, I'll either just kind of play dumb and change the change topic. And if that doesn't work, I'll just straight up say that I don't, I don't want to talk about it. And that's been really, really helpful because it's created more space between me and the client. You know, it's allowed me to breathe. It's not, I'm not trying to impress people anymore. I'm just like, doing my job and I feel safe because they don't know who I am they don't know all of me I've stopped wearing my heart on my sleeve I've saved some of myself for myself and I think that's been really important and I guess the last thing probably on boundaries would be scope of practice so I've worked quite hard um with um by myself and also with my supervisor to really understand when scope ends for me, like, and when I need to stop doing something, particularly in the psych space, in the ED space, it can be very easy to sort of start diving into histories accidentally and, you know, people telling you very deep and personal things, which, you know, aren't necessarily your are definitely not within your scope to unpack or even listen to. You're not trained. So I have I've done a lot of active work as well to learn how to notice when I'm crossing out of my scope and how to artfully like exit out of that so that it's not distressing to the client either. Um, and I wish I had done these things earlier because I was an unhappy I've always loved my job, but I was unhappy when I didn't have these in place. I was, you know, I didn't have as much space for myself. So I would really, really, really encourage people to think about what their boundaries actually are in their clinical practice and um, spend some time outlining them for themselves and putting them on a piece of paper because if you don't know what they are in my opinion going through the process I've done now it's a recipe for disaster because it's only a matter of time before something happens it's going to be very distressing for you yep and you don't have any safety net yep. like to go to you're just like what boundaries do whatever <laughs> it takes to help the client and it's like yeah that is actually very unhelpful in some contexts and you start recognizing that <laughs> and the impact it has on you. So yeah, boundaries of, of time, professional boundaries with conversations and then having the skills to communicate those boundaries and be like, hmm. uh, unfortunately this is outside of my scope of practice. I appreciate you 
letting me know. I just can't help you in this particular case. What mm. I can do though is X, Y, Z with the EP scope of practice. Mm. Yeah. All these skills that we should have been taught so much earlier, but I know, yeah. I and know. Now we know. I them. wish. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully someone else can learn them before, like, like before it becomes critical, you know, you don't want to end up being the volcano that explodes and then you get all the skills. Like you want, you want all the skills to stop the volcano from exploding in the first place. <laughs> That's like a philosophical chat. Cause sometimes what if the volcano was necessary or what if the volcano was always there? Yeah. But wasn't that what like, could have been a societal influence though that created the volcano? We'll have to <laughs> tune into the next episode as we discuss <laughs> this existential societal uh, impact volcano. through this analogy. Yeah. The societal injustice for volcano. <laughs> Ellen, thank Love you for, for being vulnerable and for opening up this discussion. It's been awesome to hear. Uh, I've learned a lot as well, listening through, and I'm sure listeners have as well. And keen to hear for those who are interested more in learning more about you and your work and where you're at, where can people follow you? Um, well, you can follow my business page um, at uh, your.movement.space on Instagram. You can follow my Instagram page at ellen.masson underscore EP. Um, if you're interested in hearing um, me and my co-host, Tate Brown, ramble um, over a podcast about very random things, exercise-related, we are on most major platforms, including Spotify and uh, Apple iTunes, and the podcast is Into the Red Zone. Still my favorite one. Still <laughs> the one I listen to the most. Always keen. Ellen, thank you so much. And very much looking forward to maybe in two years' time, we'll have another two-year reflection <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I'll hold you to it. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs>